A de Havilland comet is taking off out of Calcutta and into the clouds, then comes crashing down into the ground. What caused this flight to fall out of the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. We do have a new patron. Yes. We do. Thanks to... Simon. Simon. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Simon. Simon is a family friend, and we told him about our podcast Friday, and he became the highest tier patron the following day. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that very much. Yeah. If you want ducks, you can still get ducks. That. We'll probably send them out after the beginning of May. Yes. And we will do an aviation stories. Probably it'll be a conglomeration of March and April because we have about uh, eight, nine, ten stories. Okay, cool. It'll be long. And on top of that, y'all aren't getting much for the month of June. So all of that. Yes. I think that's it. So what are we covering today, Nicholas? Today. We are covering BOAC Flight 783. Thank you to Ian for recommending this. I'm pretty sure we told you like five different dates this is going to premiere. It's premiering now. Yeah. Finally. (laughs) I don't think we told you this date. No, because I think we had to move it again. Yes. We've had a lot of shifting around lately with a lot of little things going on. So we apologize, but dates are going to be all kind of messed up for a little while. Anywho, this occurred on May 2nd of 1953. Taking it back. Way back. This was a de Havilland Comet 1. Yes, we are talking about the comet again. This is one of the only other times we'll talk about the comet also. (laughs) This happened prior to the other two comet crashes we have talked about. Yes. Which are relevant. Yes. This one had the tail number Golf-Alpha Lima Yankee Victor. I did not go try to figure out what it was in the old English phonetic alphabet. That's a lot of work. This was a flight, ready, from Singapore to Bangkok to Rangoon to Calcutta to Delhi to London. Yeah, because, you know, they had really, really bad range back then. Yes, I also think there was more stops after Delhi, but I could not find them anywhere. Well, it didn't matter. Right. The Wikipedia page only listed Calcutta and Delhi, but I also found information that said they stopped in Bangkok and Rangoon as well, so. It doesn't matter after Delhi. (laughs) No. Nope. Mm Mm-mm. The captain for the flight was Maurice Hedden. He had 8,710 hours total. I did not calculate their ages. They didn't give them to me, and it wasn't super important. They were all in their 30s and 40s. Hmm. Okay. As second pilot, during the day, he had 115 hours on the Comet. At night, he had 35 hours on the Comet. As first pilot, during the day, he had 283 hours in the Comet and 156 hours in the Comet for a total of 589 flight hours in the Comet. Okay. That's a lot of math. Yes. They didn't just come out right and say it. Yeah. Why do you have to be like... Here's all the stuff. I mean, normally it's broken down in other reports too, but they usually just have, here's his totals. And they don't specify day or night. Right. Because why? Right. Doesn't really There's no point. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first officer was George Strange. He had 4,391 hours total, of which... 148 hours were in the day... On Comet 1, and 113 were at night for a total of 261 hours on the Comet. You'll note that all of them have very low hours because the Comet was very... Brand new. Yeah. Yes. The flight engineer 
was Littleton Gilmore. Littleton spelt with a Y. Huh. I thought that was interesting. Littleton Gilmore. He had 5,995 hours total. He was five hours short of 6,000 hours. And he had 835 hours on the comet. Most experienced in the comet. There was a radio officer named Alfred Wood, who had a total of 7,290 hours with 542 being on the comet. He had the second most hours total. I mean, that's when they had radio officers. They don't have those anymore. No. They got rid of those pretty fast. Yeah. Unnecessary, since they can generally handle their own communication. Yeah. You don't need someone to handle your own, the communication. Yep. Most of them had previous experience with the RAF, in case that was a question. I mean, this is like going into the jet age, so... Yes, this is the beginning of the jet age. Yeah, most pilots were military pilots. The comet is the beginning of the jet age. Yeah. It's one of them. To put in perspective how many different aircraft some of these flight crew are familiar with, here is the list that the captain had flown in the past with just BOAC. The Lockheed 10A, the Fokker XII, which I suppose would be 12. The Lockheed 14, the Junkers, 52. The Lockheed 18, Armstrong Whitworth, 27. The DH-95, also known as Flamingo. Douglas C-47, the short S-25. The DH Dove in Oxford, the Argonaut C-4, and the Comet 1. But point is, they're just flying everything they can. Yep. Well, and in wartime. You fly whatever you're You fly what you did. They're like, okay, you're flying this today. Yep. It's basically how that worked back then. Yep, basically. Yep. They just threw pilots into whatever, basically. (laughs) You can fly this. It was all roughly the same. Oh, you don't give the history of the steward, which is also no. included? No. He had 530 hours on the comet, okay. in case anyone cared. I didn't know they tracked hours on airplane His, his name was George Irwin. Okay. There's also stewardess Patricia Rawlinson, who had 160 hours. Sorry, didn't want to leave her out. Very new. Excellent. That's it. The rest of this is going to be very short. The flight from Singapore to Calcutta was uneventful, along with all the stops in between. The flight was to continue on with 37 passengers and 6 crew to Delhi. The flight departed runway 19 left at Calcutta at 4.29 p.m. local time, headed for Delhi. The flight had been cleared for a VFR, or visual flight rule, climb, which I thought was interesting. This is not normal these days. This is an old procedure. Shortly after the flight took off, it flew into severe thunderstorms and rain, however. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. They knew that going into it, they by did. the way. They did. The flight climbed to 7,500 feet before something catastrophic occurred. The aircraft fell off radar about that point and stopped responding to radio calls, with the last call from the aircraft being at 4.35 p.m. Mind you, the times there were half an hour off from the rest of the world, even back then. Because, whatever. As the flight was climbing, just six minutes after takeoff, witnesses on the ground saw the airplane drop out of the thunderstorm cloud on fire dropping quickly toward the ground in pieces. The aircraft impacted the ground heavily, leaving a five and a half mile track of debris in its path across fields and roads. And whatever a nulla is. Yes. A nulla, by the way, is a dry riverbed or a ravine. Okay, there we go. The aircraft crashed near the village of Jagalgari, about 24 miles from the Dum Dum Airport of Calcutta. I'm never going to not <laughs> giggle. I know. That really is what it's called. All 43 on board unfortunately perished in the accident because it was a heavy impact with flames. The airplane broke up into quite a few pieces. 
I'll get into it. This investigation was performed by the Ministry of Civil Aviation in India, which fell under the purview of Her Majesty, the Queen. At that time, yes. Excellent. I actually looked it up, and India had gained independence in 1947. But I'm sure they didn't have an investigative body for this. No. Yeah. I mean, sort of, but no. It turns out the British didn't really either, because they always have to create these inquiries at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. In terms of investigation, I don't have a whole, whole lot... We know that this occurred in 1953, and investigation resources, particularly in India at the time of this investigation, were not fantastic. Let's start with witness statements. Many of these came from agricultural workers in the area. They reported metal falling and looking up to see fire. One saw a flash of light and looked up to see a plane on fire, at which point he heard a bang and saw the plane split into two, one piece falling into the nullah and the other falling and burning some distance away. Most, if not all, witnesses reported that the storm that day was unusually violent. Okay, how violent? The flight forecast was collected two and a half to three hours before the flight, and it reflected scattered thunder showers and moderate turbulence to the east of Dum Dum, with surface visibility as one half to one nautical miles in the showers and six to seven nautical miles outside of the showers. The weather at the destination was local dust haze with visibility at five to six nautical miles. Before then, at 13.10 local time, aka 1.10 p.m., the area traffic control got the following pilot report. Storm developing 2410 degrees north, 89 degrees east. I think there was a typo in there. Not sure. Cumulonimbus 3,000 feet moving southeast direction with very strong vertical updraft. Mm. This was passed on to all aircraft in the area, including the accident aircraft, as it flew into Calcutta. Two hours later, a special airfield warning was issued at Dum Dum, reading, quote, Thunderstorm accompanied with squalls from northwest, speed reaching 50 knots, likely Dum Dum airfield and neighborhood between 02 1200 hours GMT and 02 1600 hours GMT. This translates to between 1730 and 2130 local time, or 530 and 930 p.m. Which was later than their departure. There was an end quote in there. Sorry. It's okay. This warning was sent to the comet. It was never acknowledged. The actual weather at takeoff was variable sky, winds out of the south-southwest at 13 knots, cumulus clouds with a base of 2,500 feet, and cumulonimbus clouds with a base of 3,000 feet. So that's some weather. That is some weather. Of most concern is the speed of the storm, which was 50 knots. That is a lot. Now, granted, that's how fast the storm itself is moving across the landscape, but that means that something's pushing it to 50 knots. Yep. Right as well as the reports of updrafts, which also in many circumstances come with downdrafts. Yep, sure do. Investigators consulted a meteorologist who informed them that nor'wester squalls in the area are usually 30 to 40 square miles, and as they develop into the mature stage, are characterized by a downpour of rain and the accompanying down gusts of anywhere between 15 and 50 miles an hour. Oof. That's horrifying. Yep. Just imagine a 50 mile an hour wind just pushing you towards the ground. This kind of goes, I'm good. This kind of goes back to that whole convective current thing we were talking about a handful of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, the episode came out this week. Yes, it did. <laughs> That's, I listened to it this morning, so yes. that's how I remember. Yes. <laughs> Let's transition to wreckage. The wreckage was found over a five and a half mile range, but that's not to say that there was damage between the pieces. If there had been, that would have indicated that the aircraft approached at an angle. Nope, not here. Although the pieces were spread out, the impact areas themselves were condensed, indicating that the pieces fell vertically and had actually broken apart in the air. Now, this is not a time of black boxes to help us figure out what happened. So investigators had to rely solely on the aforementioned witness statements and wreckage. The wreckage can proved... I, can, I, can I guess? Can I guess? Sure. 
Did it get struck by lightning? No. It did not. There was no evidence of being struck by lightning. No, that's hard to say when it's been burned, but they did not find any evidence of lightning. Oh, okay. The wreckage proved helpful. This isn't necessarily the order in which they discovered each bit of evidence or even the order in which they reported it, but this most closely reflects the series of unfortunate events. I think, anyway. Mm -hmm. They think? No one knows. The fuselage aft of the wings had kerosene and soot marks or stains indicating that fuel was on fire and was blowing in the direction of the wind against the fuselage. This tells us a couple of things. That happened in the air, and the volume of it indicated that the wings tore off. Oh, jeez. Yep. For that much fuel to be released, that usually takes wings being, uh... Removed. Yeeted. For lack of a better term. Pick your verb. <laughs> when wings break off of an aircraft, what happened to them? Well, they impact the tail. Oh, You're done now, son. <laughs> Although, you can't fly without wings either, but you're really done now, son. Yeah, unfortunately, that is a no-go. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing, nothing good is happening here. They impacted the tail, especially the elevators and the rudder, all of which had impact damage, though investigators were unable to determine what hit what and when. Further investigation of the fuselage showed compression of the bottom panels aft of the wing and tension in the top panels, meaning that something was bending the plane in an N shape. Not a U shape, but an N shape. They were looking at my hands for yes. reference. <laughs> Make a claw with your hands, like an N shape versus a U shape. Like, right. I, don't, I don't know. It was bending it over center, not under center. Sure. It's an N. It's an upside down parabola. I mean, a parabola isn't really right side up one way or the other. Yeah, but usually when you think about it, it the hump is up. It's a down. it's a Y equals negative X squared, not X squared. Right. If that, all of that was confusing, we're so sorry. In this circumstance, what might add an upward load and what might add a downward load, since that's what it takes to bend something? Investigators surmise that the flight encountered a downdraft, you know, since they studied the weather and things, which pointed the nose down and it increased the airspeed. Well, if that happens to you, what is your immediate response going to be? Pull up. The crew reduced the throttle as evidenced by them being found in the half-open position, as well as tried to raise the nose to climb again using the elevators. In so doing, this attempted upward force caused a downward reactionary force in the tail, which was not built to withstand torsion, which it was experiencing from turbulence, and the fuselage began to bend. The evidence suggests that the fuselage failure may have been caused by the elevator failure, which may have been caused by the wing failure. Investigators performed on-the-ground tests of the wing. The wing failed in the... Fatigue tests, and after some modification, was subjected to a static load test where it failed again at 90% of the ultimate load, which is like the published failure load of the wing. So they ramped it up to 90% of that, and it failed, which was attributed to having previously been subjected to the fatigue load. Modifications were done again, and then somehow without a retest, it was found satisfactory for the ultimate load on theoretical considerations. Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. Also, I feel like we always talk about this with a lot of stuff. You need to test it again. Like, there is no theoretical BS here. Test the d part again. Because unless you know for sure it can withstand the forces, it's gonna fail. Now, I should specify, they didn't do it on the accident wing since that was, um... Gone. Not whole. But they did do it on a replica, basically. Yeah. And found that it was not rated to what they said it was rated. The reason I think that they didn't do a retest is they got the information they needed. The failure during the static test occurred at rib number seven, which is also where the accident wings failed hmm. and indicates improper diffusion of the wing loads at rib number seven. Investigators 
suggested design modifications to reinforce that area as well as methods to transfer the load off of that particular rib. That being said, the investigators had limited facilities and data to substantiate the primary failure. Investigators regret that they were unable to determine the exact order of events of whether or not the fuselage failed first or the wings did, and they anticipate with the furtherance of physics and technology that it could be determined where and when the in-flight breakup began and how it commenced, but there were just too many factors, what with the parts breaking off and hitting each other, thereby affecting each trajectory, and they just couldn't determine when anything happened in what order, See, any in, of it. In full investigative bodies, they actually have teams that are dedicated to figuring this kind of stuff out. But that's only when it's necessary, because now what with the advent of recorders, mm -hmm. like data recorders and cockpit voice recorders, it's not usually necessary to figure out what went where when. Correct. Because they have the information already presented to you. Right, because you can usually figure out where the first point of failure was some way or another from that. Yeah, so once you have to put this in real engineering terms, once you have initial conditions, it's much easier to determine sequence of events. Yes. If you have nothing and you start with nothing, it's hard to determine anything. Right. If you at least have point one of your graph, you got something to start with. Right. As such, investigators could not determine if turbulence itself caused the breakup, as in, did turbulence cause the wings to snap off? Or did over-controlling the aircraft during the encounter with turbulence cause the breakup, as in reacting with the elevators? Did that cause something? So, did the wing snapping off hit the elevator, which then caused the fuselage to bend? Or did the reaction from controlling the aircraft cause the elevators to make the fuselage bend, which then made the wing snap off? Like, it's so hard. Yeah, I can see either of those situations. There's no possible way to determine... Like, was it ABC or BCA or like... Right, right. Three failures total happened. Wings, tail, fuselage. Right. And any one of them could have caused subsequent ones. All they could pretty much determine was, yes, those three things definitely failed. Fair enough. I mean, all any one of those three things is still very important. Now, here's what they didn't know at the time of this investigation, and therefore couldn't affect any of their theories... But not that long later, the other two comet crashes happened because of stress concentration in the window section of right. the fuselage. This aircraft was pressurized at the time of failure. Yep. It's not like a huge amount of pressure. No, it was very low level. But it's still being repetitively pressurized. It's right. being cyclically pressurized and loaded, therefore creating fatigue at the stress concentrations of the window. So maybe the fuselage failed first. There is a potential for that. The only reason that I kind of agree with them, I don't think that's what happened in this case. I think it was probably just severe turbulence in an airframe that wasn't built to be handled the way that it was in this case. Yeah, you know, 50 knot downdrafts. Yeah, this was just all around bad. But the only reason I think that that wasn't true is because in the other ones, they pretty much just popped like balloons. And they didn't really find any... I was going to say, they kind of just went... Pfft. Yeah, there wasn't really... There wasn't any fire, really, or anything like that. Right, there wasn't really any evidence of that in this case where they pop like balloons. Like, there wasn't outward Which I agree breaking with. from the cabin. I agree with in that those were, like, purely pressurization loading, which caused that. Right. Whereas in this case, you had minor pressurization loading. Yes. But you probably already had fatigue cracking. Yes, I think it was probably maybe a factor, but I don't think it was causal. It's hard to... It's so hard to say. It is. There's so little data on this one, and this report was very short, and it show. I mean, it shows, but 
they did the best with what they could, and they determined that in some way, shape, or form, the airplane was overstressed and fell apart. If you need a reminder about the comet crashes and what actually happened with those, we covered them in episode 46. And Chris was on, Dr. Yakaki. Yes. The Yak Man. The Yak, yak man. man. And he kind of talked about how all of that occurred and all that stuff. So if you need a reminder about what happened with those, go ahead and check that episode out if you have not listened to that episode yet. Or if you need a reminder, go ahead and listen to that episode again. I might end up doing that because I don't remember everything. So Fair enough. Okay. Shall we take a break? We'll take yep. a break and we'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, we're back. Hello. 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 Let's do some findings and cause and recommendation and stuff. There were a whole six findings. Oh, wow. We are skipping the first two because they are exactly what you think they are. Oh, so four. So there are only four left. <laughs> <laughs> I math. can do math. Yeah. They found that the all-up weight did not exceed the regulated weight and the position of the center of gravity was within the safe limits laid down in the load and trim sheet. This is important, I guess. I mean, I never really thought that it was a weight and balance problem, you know, since, like, wings fell off. Yes, but I could kind of understand where they think so, because there are cases where wings fall off, but usually it's high wing when the aircraft is heavily loaded below, and it does happen with low wings, too, should clarify. It okay. can happen to either, but especially when they're in a high G situation and they pull up and they're heavily loaded in the wings full of fuel. Makes sense. They just snap when their force is too high. And it's not to say that maybe that didn't happen, but they couldn't prove it. And also that whole thing was just saying weight and balance, which I don't know why they didn't just write weight and balance, but they said load and trim. <laughs> so, sure. They found that before departure, the captain was in possession of all of the relevant meteorological and air traffic control information required for the flight. This included the warning of a thunder squall. He knew what he was getting himself into. Yes. <laughs> thunder squall. Yes. <laughs> It confused me why they were cleared on a VFR departure. I mean, me, I know that too. at the airport it was relatively clear, and within the first couple of minutes of flight it was relatively clear, but they said somewhere in the first six minutes the airplane went into the thunderstorm because somewhere in the first six minutes it broke apart. That's what we know. So that's kind of related to part of the, not even analysis, but section that I didn't really go that far into, mm -hmm. and it's kind of brief. And I'm noticing that this is a short episode, so I'm going to go ahead and read it verbatim. Sure. As to why that was important. Quote, It would not be out of place to point out here that the Director General of Civil Aviation has issued a notice to airmen. NOTAM. They were not yet called NOTAMs. Yes. Number 33 of 1952, dated Halloween, requiring that aerodromes where the service or flight originates and at intermediate halts, the pilot in command or the flight operations officer or flight dispatcher should report in person to the air traffic control office. For briefing before that's, commencement of flight. That's a very not followed procedure these days. They don't do that. I think it was kind of temporary. Yes. Well, I'd say so. And this kind of makes sense for maybe airports where they don't have the kind of resources to look at all this data all the time. But the air traffic controllers do. So I'm going to skip ahead a bit. In the present instance, the operations assistant Sundararaman. Okay. 
collected the briefing and obtained the clearance certificate from the area control officer, which he handed over to the captain. The pilot in command usually does not report personally to the air traffic control officer. This procedure is a clear violation of the notice issued by the Director General of Civil Aviation. In the present case, however, this has no direct bearing on the investigation, as there is no doubt that the captain of the Comet was in full possession of the briefings and all the information relevant to his flight, end quote. He had the data. Even though he himself did not get it and therefore was in violation of the NOTAM. Right. So, yeah, that's a whole thing. The weather, obviously was very contributory here. And you just wouldn't fly into severe thunderstorms like that. I mean, obviously, it's happened since then. The Air France flight we just covered. Yes, but I would also say that maybe it wasn't well known that, you know, turbulence could just break up a plane. Let the record show. That doesn't happen. Yeah, it's also not very common anymore. It wasn't common before and it wasn't common after. Like, this isn't... Turbulence breaking up an airplane is not something that anybody's actually concerned about. So this is an odd one. That's that's really why we did this is because it's like, if this really was turbulence that broke this up, that is rare. That is strange. That is interesting. That could have been some severe turbulence on an airframe that just wasn't built for it. This airframe had problems. Yeah. Please refer to episode, whatever I said, 46. 46. Hey, whenever you build something new. It's going to be wrong. There's going to be problems. That's just the truth. Moving on. They found that the aircraft encountered a nor'wester squall with thunderstorm shortly after takeoff when climbing to its cruising altitude and suffered structural failure in the air, which caused fire. I like Brilliant. How just how they put it. It caused fire. 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 And finally, they found that an examination of the wreckage on the site did not reveal any sign of sabotage lightning damage, faulty workmanship, defective material, or power plant failure. So Great. It was not, as far as we know, struck by lightning. I think it's interesting because they also bring up, like, faulty workmanship. They don't bring up faulty engineering. They do bring up faulty workmanship, which means the airplane was put together incorrectly. That's not the case, but it may have been engineered to be put together incorrectly, (laughs) I would argue. But it wasn't sabotaged. It wasn't lightning, at least not that they found wasn't an engine. The probable cause of the accident. The accident was caused by structural failure of the airframe during flight through a thunder squall. In the opinion of the court, the structural failure was due to overstressing, which resulted from either one, severe gusts encountered in the thunder squall, or two, over-controlling or loss of control by the pilot when flying through the thunderstorm. Yep. Again, like they, it's so hard to say one way or the other which it was. Right. It's very succinct, though, that in some way, shape, or form... The airplane fell apart from forces, and that is rough. Now for the whole two recommendations, both of them. The court recommends that the wreckage should be transported as soon as possible to the state registry and his detailed technician examination be undertaken with a view to determine the primary failure and to consider if any modification in the structure of the Comet aircraft is necessary. That is... I, I assume they got around to doing this, but at the same time... I'm assuming this was overtaken by the other comets. I was going to say, very shortly thereafter, they had a whole nother situation they had to deal with, and they went a lot deeper on that, so they probably didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this. The whole airframe got redesigned anyway. Pretty much. Yep. And they also recommend that consideration should be given to the desirability of modifying the flying control system of the comet aircraft in order to give the pilot a positive, quote, feel, end quote, of air loads exerted on the control surfaces. I don't like that one. I mean, it's 
kind of I, worked around by the fact that instruments exist. Yes, and they had plenty of instruments even at the time to just kind of give you an idea of what forces you're encountering, but then they got even better. And at the same time, it's just, it's not necessary. And we didn't design airplanes after this to have a feel of forces. As a matter of fact, you don't really want that because the harder it can be, the harder, the more it feels those forces, the harder it can be to, to control, control the airplane when you encounter high forces. So they're actually better designed with hydraulics and fly-by-wire. So meh, I don't like that one. And also, I just don't see it ever being necessary. So I'm glad they didn't do it. That's pretty much it. That's I mean, that's the whole thing. They really wanted to know more. They wanted to try to figure out more. But because of the other comet crashes, this really got overshadowed. And it wasn't of main concern. This was obviously not good for the comet, be it that it was brand new. But it ultimately wasn't a continuing problem. Something it else got superseded. Was. Yes, it got superseded. And the comet actually went on to fly a lot longer, but there were so many other jet aircraft that came about so quickly that this just wasn't even a thing. But I always liked the the look of the comet. It's just really interesting. It's very much what you would expect they would design for like a Jetsons age looking aircraft. Yes, it really looks exactly the way you think it does for that for that age. Yeah. It's really like sleek aerodynamic and it's one of those last airplanes that I think was designed with some kind of artistic engineering because a lot of airplanes these days are just designed to do the thing and that's mm -hmm. all they do. The 787 I could say is designed with a little bit of artistic flair, so is the A350, but most airplanes are just pretty much designed to do a thing and they are designed to do that thing well, which is good. But yeah, we, we lose a lot of that artistic effect that they used to put in airplanes like the Comet. Well, that was BOAC fly. I don't remember the flight number. 783. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our patrons. You guys are awesome. Thanks to everyone who listens. You are also awesome yes. and amazing. And I'm sorry if I'm really quiet. I'm very far away from my microphone. It's okay. Sorry for the very short episode. Yeah. But also. But also, we kind of needed a short episode. So. And also, it's different. It's just different. This was a different thing. We don't really cover turbulence-caused breakups. No. No. And we won't very often, ever. Because usually it doesn't happen. Right. All right. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.